logical principle that there is. He thought just for a second, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That puts us in remembrance of the former things, things that we might otherwise let slip if we don't remind ourselves constantly. And here's something. I'm not a prophet, but I do know something about life and the Scriptures. And I do not know what of good or ill may be reserved for me, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto that day. And so the darkest day of your life would be the day that you do not know that Jesus loves you and you do not know that the Bible tells you so. These are great things. Do they apply to us today? Sometimes we are challenged by the idea that in today's world, what is presented at church is not relevant. Young people struggle with this. That what I'm hearing just doesn't apply. It's not relevant. So there's a challenge to remember that the living Word of God is applicable to all of us at all times. And so the parts of it that we need will, will be there and they will be in our hearts springing up a life-giving stream resulting in eternal life. And so we think about the simple things that can be the very great things and whether they're relevant or not. I saw a cartoon a number of years ago in the 80s, I think, in the Christianity Today magazine. And there was this guy sitting on the side of the bed talking on the phone. And he was all distraught. His hair was messed up. And his eyes looked wild. And he was just, just, a, just a mess. And on the phone, he's talking. And he says, a pastor or a preacher, he said, I've, I've, I've lost my job. And I need surgery. And my wife has left me. And, uh, and you've got to help me. You've got to help me. What's the difference between premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism? So the idea is, what's that got to do with anything? And so here we've got our life problems. My wife left me or my husband left me. I need surgery. All these, all these troubles. And you're going to talk about that? And so we have to think about the eternal living truths of God's Word. One day a man was preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter with the eleven. And um, as he was preaching... He, he led them down the pathway to the cross. And listen to the words, if you will, in verse 36, beginning down through verse 40. As Peter is, is coming to near the conclusion of his sermon, before, just before he's interrupted in his thoughts and in his speech. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So as Peter was preaching to them and proclaiming to them the living word of God, he also convicted them of their sins. And as they listened, they understood that they were guilty of crucifying no less than the Son of God. And so when they realized that they had sins and had a problem, they cried out, Well, what are we going to do about that? It's a little bit late now. I mean, that... What are we going to do? And so Peter, rather than saying there's nothing you can do, it's already in the past, can't fix it, can't bring him back, or he's already back, rather he just said, here's what you need to do. 
being convicted of your sins like, like you are, then you need to repent of your wickedness, repent of these sins, that sin and others, and be baptized, every one of you. And so as Peter was preaching, the question came, what shall we do about our sins? And he gave them a direct, specific answer and instructed them, this is the solution to that. Paul, as he was recounting in Acts, the 22nd chapter, as he was recalling the time when he was still Saul of Tarsus and was going around persecuting the church, laying waste the church, looking for men and women to imprison and accuse of being Christians and, and all this, on the road to Damascus to do more of his dirty deeds, he met up with the Lord and this great light shone around him as he fell to his knees and had this conversation with Jesus and Jesus uh, talked to him. He said, why are you persecuting me? And as the conversation developed, Saul said, what would you have me to do, Lord? Same question these people on the day of Pentecost were asking. And now here he is brought to his knees, seeing the light, as we say, and he's, he's wondering what to do. And the answer came back, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. So he went in to see Ananias and he laid hands on him. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And then he said, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So here again, a man convicted of sin, of wrongdoing, of a need of something desperate in his life, is given the same answer, has, has something to do with being dipped in water. Now as we develop this, realize that in the churches of Christ, we are labeled or accused of just, just, just sticking ourselves on baptism. It's all we can talk about, baptism this, baptism that. And it's like that's the whole issue. And it's not the whole issue. It's not everything. It's not the only thing. But it is one thing that relates to our relationship to God. And so in, a, in another case, in Acts 16 and verse 30, we read there the Philippian jailer at midnight when Paul and Silas were singing these hymns and praising God. And the earthquake came. The doors were opened in the prison. And, and the, prisoner, the uh, jailer came in to check on the prisoners. And he talks to Paul about this. And, and as he realizes... He's in the hands of the Almighty God. He says, what must I do to be saved? Again, the same answer came. You need to be baptized. And all of his household, he and his, his whole household were receiving the word that night, at the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds, and he took them and baptized them. And so now, as we look at this, this idea of what can I do to be saved, it's a fundamental problem of mankind. We get confused in our world today over all the hoopla about trying to make church interesting and make assembling interesting and make our religious lifestyle interesting and make it compare to the nations around us and, and all that. And we sometimes have what we call mission creep where we get off of the central business of the church and of the kingdom, and that is the reconciliation of mankind. Mankind's fundamental need since creation, since the fall of, of man in the garden, has been redemption from our sins. And that's the story of the Bible. And so in, in this case, we're going to look at a simple concept today that salvation is one, two, three. And I want us to just get that fixed in our minds. It's a simple concept, and yet it's so profound. First of all, we are accused of being very narrow-minded. And yet, that's a compliment in a way because if you look at what Jesus taught about himself and about the kingdom, what Paul and Peter and others taught about the kingdom and about Christ, we see this idea of unity and singleness. In fact... We find that there is one way in all this, and it's all designed by God. And so Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that there is one way that leads to life eternal. It's a narrow way, it's difficult, and few there be that find that. 
But there are others who go down this broad way that leads to destruction. And many there be, the King James Version says, many there be that go in thereat. That is, it's the easy way, live and let live, eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow we die. And all that business of the flesh. And we go down that road, it's easy, no problemo, and we go right into hell without much effort. But the ones who want to go to God find the way straight and narrow and difficult and quite challenging to rise to the occasion. But there are not many ways. There is one way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by me. Now we think about narrow-mindedness. And we think about singleness and, and, and uh, only one answer. Look at who taught us that. It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He singles out no man. No man comes to the Father but by me. flip side is anyone who gets there will come through me. And so that way is narrow. It's the one way. It is Christ. And there is one fold, one sheepfold that has one shepherd. John 10, Jesus talks about this. And he said, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. My sheep know me and they hear my voice and they will follow me, but they will not follow some other man. I lay down my life for the sheep. And so when we think about this, we have one fold. This is singular. This is unity. This is oneness. And then in John 14, verses 1 through 6, in that passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples and Philip and others are there. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, then I will come and receive you to myself and take you there. And where I am, there you may be also. Uh, Lord, show us the way, the way you know. So as he explains all of this, Lord, show us the Father. Philip, have I been so long with you and you've not known me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So he all goes back down to this singular individual, this good shepherd of the sheep, this one place that this one shepherd prepares for us. And in John 15, verses 1 through 7, Jesus talks about himself being the vine. And he said, I am the vine, and ye are the branches, individual members. Some theologians look at that passage and they say, well, Jesus is the vine and all the various religious groups, all the 500,000, all these different religious beliefs are all the branches. And they're all in Christ. All of them teaching different faiths and different baptisms and different worship styles and different belief systems and different worldviews. All these divisions are one in Christ. When that's not what he said at all. He said, I am the vine and you are the, are the branches, each member of the church. So that's singularity again. And then in Matthew 21 and verse 42. Haven't you read that the builders rejected this cornerstone and that very cornerstone they rejected has become chief of the corner. Jesus was talking about himself. All this is saying, I am number one. There is only one. And then in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body with one head. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and all this business. And then in Acts 4, verses 11 and 12, we are taught there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So if there's only one way, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one sheepfold, one shepherd, one body, one head, it starts getting pretty narrow that it's all about Christ. And that's why someone could put it on a bumper sticker and just summarize the whole thing that says Jesus is the answer. And then some smart aleck put their bumper sticker next to it and says, well, if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? Here's the question. What am I supposed to be doing about Jesus being the answer? How am I supposed to relate to my marriage, to my children? How am I supposed to relate to my wife, that I nourish her and cherish her, even as Christ loves and cherishes the church? 
that no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. All these things apply as Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, who put on sandals and walked among us, shows us the way, the one way to be reconciled to God. But there are two sides to this business of salvation. There's something that God does and something that we do. Some people are confused today and have been taught that God does it all. If he wants you saved, he will save you. If not, then you're out. But yet the Bible teaches that we have a say in the matter. The devil votes against us. God votes for us. And then we have a vote. We vote, I'll go with the devil, I'll go with God. So we have a vote in the issue. And so there is a divine side and there is the human side. On the divine side is the gift of God. This is something God just freely gives. And you go through the book of Romans and you almost lose count unless you underline it in the scriptures. The free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. Over and over again, God pours this out because of his love for mankind. I give it to you. Our side is I'll take it or no thanks, I don't want it. So then the choice is ours. So let's listen to Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. But just as it is written, wait a minute, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, and notice the shift here, it's a free gift from God, but then we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. So there is... The gift of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the salvation offered freely from God, and then our walking in the good works in which we were created to perform. And then he continues, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Now notice the trouble they were in and how bad this sounds. You were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You're plumb way out in left field. So far, you're not even in the stadium. You have no hope. You're without God. You're not an Israelite. You're just out of it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we have the two sides to this issue of salvation, the divine side and then the human receiving side, the accepting side. So God provides something here. He provides the gift, and then man decides what he will do with the offer of the gift. Listen, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, beginning through 13. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul is saying, we got the mind of God and the heart of God revealed to us through the Spirit, and now we wrote it down and we proclaim it to you. So God provides the revelation. 
Without the revelation, we wouldn't even know what trouble we're in. We wouldn't even realize why life is such a misery unless we know where we came from, what we're doing here, and where we're going. And the Word of God revealed, explains what the issues of life are all about. And then uh, God provides an atoning sacrifice. He reveals us the problem, which is sin. And then he says, and here's the solution. John 3, verse 14 through 17. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 17. And so now God gives us the revelation and the truth and the information we need what the problem is, and the solution. He offers the solution through the sacrifice of Christ, and then man decides. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, and it teaches us that denying ungodly lust, we're to live soberly and righteously and godly lives in this present world, looking for the blessed hope of His appearing. He came, the grace of God sent Christ, He teaches us to live godly lives, and we await His coming again the appearing of this great Son of God in flaming fire with His angels, taking vengeance on the unrighteous and the ungodly, but receiving His own to Himself to take them to the place He promised to prepare. And so now there is one way through Jesus Christ, through His eternal kingdom, the church, through His blood. It's two-sided, God's side and our side, but there are three stages to this. And that is the past, the present, and the future. The Bible uses language to explain that we have been saved from our sins. That's a done deal. Right now we enjoy being saved in a saved state or condition. It's an ongoing process and lifestyle. And in the future, once and for all, finally, we walk into heaven and it's a done deal all complete. And that's the future from this point. And so when we believed... And obeyed, our sins were washed away, according to Romans 6, verse 3 through 6. And the scripture reading earlier mentions this idea of being planted with him in the likeness of his death. We shall then expect to be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And so, Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, he says, But God be thanked, you are the servants of sin, but God be thanked that you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you, being then... When? Being then. When? When you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So he tells us we repent, we obey, being then made free from sin. And Titus 3 and verse 5 says, Not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Saved us. That's past tense. So the first stage that we look at in this business of salvation is we are saved from our former life, our former sins. It's a done deal in the past. Remember it against us no more. Then there's the present tense in uh, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. We're taught to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't mean that we figure out some way to get ourselves saved and find our own way to scratch our way into heaven, but rather we work on accepting the gift God has offered. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are being saved, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
That's the present passive participle, our being saved. So now Paul has used language to mean he saved us. We have been saved. You were then saved, then made free from sin. That's past. We are now being saved. And then there's a future result. And that's in Matthew 25 and verse 23. And that's where the going gets rough again. Because in this very simple and brief glimpse into the judgment, we have Jesus saying, I've been watching. You read the book of Revelation to the letters to the seven churches, and Jesus said, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works, all seven of them. I've been watching. And what he's looking at is not just the worship. We would not dare offer unscriptural worship that's not from the heart, that's not cheerful, and all those things. We know the parameters of entering into the holy, divine presence of the Almighty God, and we worship Him, and we sing praise to one another, speak to one another. All that's got to be to please God. And yet, in the judgment, He says, I've been watching to see whether you've been feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting those who are sick and in prison. And if you didn't do that, then you didn't do it to the least of these my disciples. And if you did do that, then you did it to the least of these my disciples, and you did it to me. And so the ones of you who didn't do that, you go into hell. I'm paraphrasing. And the ones who did do that, you enter into the joys of your Lord that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so now, at the time we find the end of the world and the judgment, we find that that inheritance is presented to us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 9. Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So that's something that's yet coming. We have been saved, we are being saved, and yet there is a salvation that will be revealed in the last time when we walk through the pearly gates, as we say. So we can know how to be saved, when it's done, whether we have done it, and then accept the challenge to walk in the light as He is in the light, and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. Now there's another thing in this one, two, three. Salvation is one way with two sides, the divine side and the human side, and three stages, past, present, and future. But there's another little simple formula that helps people get a grasp sometimes of how this whole thing works. And it's not that difficult. And that is to learn to count to three. Learn how to count to three. And then you you can put it all together. In Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, we read, He who believes, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. But some people are taught that it's one, three, and two, instead of one, two, three. He that believeth, number one, and is saved, number three, shall be baptized to show that he was saved, number two. It's not one, three, two, it's one, two, three. Well, that's too simplistic. Just go back to the words of Jesus and go back to the words of Paul. And all these times the question was asked. And see there again, the whole issue is not just baptism. It's all the things that brings a person to the point of being baptized, that they have been taught the truth of God's Word, 
that they are convicted of their own sins, their own need for repentance of those sins. The, the solution to the sin problem is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing else. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this sacrifice that was made once and for all leaves no other sacrifice needed. It was done and accomplished one time. And so we learn to count to three. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. But then that's just really the beginning. When we come to the point of surrender and say, I want to be saved and I want to fix this sin problem, then we are added to the church and we are raised for this purpose, to walk in newness of life, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. So the question comes today, as always, every day that you live, am I living for Jesus? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood? Because nothing but the blood of Jesus can take away your sins. So if you need to come to the Lord today for cleansing from sin, I invite you to come. If you need to come in repentance to be restored to your first love, I invite you to do that. Let me know what what your need is, and, and we'll pray with you and for you and help you in your salvation process if you want to come and obey God while we stand together and while we sing.